from a cat cafe this was yesterday but i'm still riding the high of it i'm i'm pretty good <laughs> i'm i feel like a bit of a narcissist because normally we'd have cage match up for one of these sort of shows but i've just got my review of it open <laughs> i have cage match open for this show because I, I wanted the accuracy numbers so today is a little bit special and a little bit different because of the way things worked we wanted to cover the Hanakamura Memorial Produce Matinee Show, which was at Currican Hall last week. And we also wanted to talk about New Jack and his sad passing as well. So we started the New Jack show last week, which was supposed to go out last Monday. And anyone who listens to the show regularly will have heard me and Chelsea talking about a bunch of stuff. That was what the episode was called. James and Chelsea talk about a bunch of stuff. Um, because John had some issues getting online and we ended up recording it on Monday night instead. And I thought, well, there's not much point putting it in the middle of the week. We'll save it till next Monday. And then we've got this Hannah show, but the Hannah show is not going to be very long. So long story short, we're putting these two together. So what we will do is we'll talk about the Hannah show now, and then we will transport you back seven days to last Monday night when me and John talked. Well, Tuesday night ended up being in the end because I ended up being absolutely knackered on Monday. So uh, we ended up being Tuesday night, six days ago, indeed, when we talked about New Jack. So it's a kind of double tribute show. But in the honour of Hannah Kimura and, to an extent, New Jack, we're going to have a laugh and a smile because, you know, these two people had a sense of humour and I don't think they'd want us to be unhappy, would they? No, we've, we've got to try and do what Ian Riccoboni and Cheeseburger did and just keep this going as happily as we can. I actually do think they were ideal commentary partners because they quite clearly had no clue what was going on sometimes, and that was no bad thing. In this no, they were kind reason. of just along for the ride as much as the rest <laughs> of us <it> were. <laughs> we should first talk about Hannah Kimura. Hannah Kimura is, or sadly was, passed away about a year ago, and it absolutely knocked me sideways. Um she was an incredible, talented, terribly talented young woman, incredibly beautiful and incredibly empathetic to the wrestling industry. She was beloved in every wrestling company she worked for. Every roster saw her as a matriarchal figure. She was the first true second generation superstar of Joshi. I was a big fan of her mother, Kimura, Kyoki Kimura, for years and years and years. And when I saw her daughter coming through, I followed her career as well. And she was just an absolute breath of fresh air in Joshi. She took on her mother's monster heel persona and reinvigorated it as a babyface for the 21st century. Not Kimura's most of her career was in the 21st century, where she put a massive spin on what that style could be like. And she was a true original in the wrestling game. And they don't come along very often, do they, John? No, there was no one quite like Hannah Kimura. Like, much like you said, it knocked me through a loop when I read about it as well, because not only was she the reason that I found stardom to begin with, like, that same year I'd 
been planning a Japan trip to go to a stardom show and obviously COVID cut all that off and before you know it this tragedy happened so yeah the wrestling world lost out on someone incredibly special because of something incredibly infuriating but as we said keep things positive and Um, that's what Kyoko has tried to do for this year through charity work, memorials, you name it. She's the na- the name Hanakamura will always be linked to positives, hopefully, rather than the tragedy that befell it. Yes, indeed. And if you want to know more about her career, um, Laura Mauro, uh, a women's editor at Steel Share Wrestling Magazine, uh, wrote a tribute to her last year. And uh, I strongly go recommend you find it. I'll put it in the link to this because, um, as as well as uh, John's tribute to New Jack, because I think they're both incredibly good pieces of writing that everyone should read and that celebrate two lives that we will sadly miss in the wrestling industry. But let us go to the happy stuff because that's really where we'd want to be. The show opened uh, in true Joshy style. With a DJ, obviously, because that's the way you start. It was Hannah's personal favorite DJ, which led into a performance by a dance group that she was part of, uh, where she trained as a dancer. And also where, because idol dancing and idol bands were what got her into the idea of performing and being uh, a public performer. She met Fuka, the uh, original, uh, one of the original three founders of Stardom Pro Wrestling uh, through idol uh, work because she was a model and a singer before she became a kickboxer and a professional wrestler and then we moved on to the actual wrestling itself which opened with SAB, Hub and Shaisu and they defeated Fuma, Milmongoose and Shota in 15 minutes and 57 seconds SAB was it was Isabi or Hub or Shiesu who was Hannah's favourite all time wrestler because I'm trying to remember the Sorry, Asa A, Tobu, and Shisu. Uh, but it was um, Hobu. Hobu, that's uh, it. The one with the incredible mask tail that he just started <laughs> whipping people with, like this. Yeah, I, I mean, this. Also, bear in mind that these guys are from wrestling promotions. Even I don't watch, and John very rarely watches because it it was deep involvement in the wrestling industry that they all came together for this show for Hannah because they were friends of Hannah. They'd worked with Hannah uh, through different promotions. But this was such a fun match, wasn't it? Yeah, like the only person I actually knew coming into this was Shorter because he's obviously part of um, Gambare and DDT. And I've seen him mm-hmm. on GKPW shows. But like, holy hell, this was incredible. This was so much <laughs> fun. And nobody understood what was going on for a lot of it because it was just like, oh, they're in. This is cool. This is cool. Oh, this is happening. Oh, and that guy's got a tail he's whipping people with. It was just incredible. Yeah, it was just it was just bang on. It was exactly where it needed to be for this show. A cracking opener with some of Panna's favorite wrestlers. And that kind of, you don't normally associate Lucha and Joshi together, though there are obviously very big links down the years. I mean, if you look at the current AAA and CMLL rosters, there's a lot of Joshi that do crossover work through Diana and through Stardom and through um, Oz Academy. But generally speaking, you know, the Japanese lucha scene has kind of had an influence with uh, with with Joshi down the years, but it's not directly involved these days. 
But yeah, these guys were awesome. And it was great to see them on a big stage at Currican Hall. You know, uh, I'm really impressed with Mil Mongoose uh, and Shersu. Uh, though, obviously, I don't think we'll be seeing them like breaking through into other places anytime soon. Is it Shotru who had some time in New Japan and Old Japan as well? Um, um, I'm trying to remember. I thought that was... Crap. No, I haven't... I can find out by just merely looking. Oh no, Chota's DDT, isn't he? And yeah, no, he's had some wrestle one time. He's had he's had a fair a fair range there. Wasn't it Mongoose that had been in All Japan and New Japan? Yes, it may well. Yeah, I'm just looking now. Yes, he had these last New Japan appearance was 2017. Oh, that would have been that J Crown that Kurokan Hall that Liger booked. Yeah. So if if Liger books you, you're good. <laughs> this, is a, this was such an interesting little spotlight because a lot of these guys were from, I think it was Okinawa Pro. Yeah, yeah. So like that's a promotion I'd barely even heard of. And then, oh, holy shit, the talent that had come out of it. I mean, who was like in his 40s, but you wouldn't know it. He was still a brick wall <laughs> moving like a tank. It was quite fun. Yeah, no, this is just this is just a fun six man lucha opener. That this this is the kind of thing that should open every wrestling show. It's all a bunch of fun stuff, it's not particularly serious, and it tells you what wrestling is. That's what wrestling shows should be about. And because Hannah Kimura was such a crossover star, I'm guessing there'd be an awful lot of people who had not watched wrestling before who would watch this show. Yeah, and it's a great way to sort of bring them into things because it's like, okay. You're here for a ride. We're going to bring you in with just this absolute manic six-man match. <laughs> yeah, there's not all else to be said about it. It's obviously none of this is storyline stuff. There's not an awful lot going on other than just joyous, joyous celebration of wrestling or lucha in this case, because it was a proper Japanese lucha style match, which you don't, you know, that kind of thing kind of has got absorbed into the Japanese style, generally speaking, I think. But, you know, when you see guys do it really, really well, then it is absolutely awesome. And, you know, there were 17 shit companies represented on this show. And it shows you the depth of indie wrestling in Japan these days. Because indie wrestling in Japan is so much more viable thanks to streaming. You know, companies like uh, Okinawa Pro don't have to go to the big towns to make money. They can do it from their home small arenas and not have massive costs. Uh, because people will go by their shows and they can run their little wrestling show. It's become much more territorial. This is the thing I find interesting about Japanese wrestling compared to North American wrestling. So in North American wrestling, you had 35 different companies that all more or less convalesced into one company, and now you have two or three others, but generally speaking, it's still one company. The drop-off between AEW Impact and Ring of Honor compared to the WWE is quite large let's say. Um, <laughs> uh, whereas in Japan, you start off with one company and they all splinter off into 20 or 30 small companies. And so you've got a territory system just because people can't go that far. So you've got Osaka Pro and Michinoku Pro and, and Okinawa Pro and all these little companies all over Japan. And, and now it's actually become viable because they can make money just on merch and on streaming. And, you know, it it can just be your fun little wrestling show. Or you get like mass like big companies with crossover appeal like 
Gato Move, Chocopro, YMZ, all these little promotions that take place in obscure little locations that everyone ends up going to. Yeah. Like, the wrestling scene over there is so incredibly creative and, like, competitive, but not in the sort of dickheaded competitive way. <laughs> not in the Tony Khan having a crack at uh, WWE's uh, international negotiators because there can only be one Khan in wrestling kind of way, which is funny. It, it's still a bit of a dig move, but it's funny. Uh, whereas, you know, this is kind of more like, we want this particular market and you're good at wrestling and we'll we'll kind of have some fun with you because it could be cool kind of way. Speaking of that exact sentiment, yeah. I think the Battle Royale nailed it. <laughs> yeah, this, 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 this was a Battle Royale for the ages. This may be my favourite Battle Royale ever uh, because it's insane. Intergender Battle Royale, let's start there. Um, the top names of indie wrestling in Japan at the moment, including some of its best and top comedy wrestlers. Uh, the entire Sendai Girls roster, uh, well, most of the Sendai Girls roster, including one of its presidents. The other one's quite busy in NXT UK. Um, and just having a laugh. I'm just having a good time. And uh, we had, we had a, a special guest in Super Delphin. He came... <laughs> Let's start there, shall we? I can read out the entire list here because I've got oh, just I'm... listen to these names. Well, I was going to do it one by one rather than let's let's do the whole list at the end because let's do yeah. the reveals first because they're like because they're just amazing reveals. So yeah. you start off with Super Delphin as your first major special guest, and that's ace. Like, talk about bringing someone huge back for a special occasion. One of the most recognisable guys in Japanese wrestling. <laughs> like, that's how you make an impact. You've already got some big names in the ring, and then just as it's about to start, that music hits, and you see Super Delphin coming out, and you know you're in for something special. Uh, then we have Hannah-chan, who came out to Hannah's theme music, who may actually be Sakura Hirata, who is, let's face it, the greatest comedy wrestler on earth. Who everyone kicked the hell out of. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't say she was popular. <laughs> it was hilarious, because they managed to get away with like the ultimate slapstick spot, because she comes in, everyone charges, starts pounding the canvas, she crawls out, someone else is getting beaten, and then they realise they've made a mistake and go straight back to beating her, and the cycle repeats. <laughs> It's just oh, perfect, like, very old-school slapstick. Yeah, uh, just ace. And then we had uh, Shitaro, uh, Shitaro Ashino uh, of All Japan and Wrestle WrestleOne um, having, like, a big showdown with big match Chihiro uh, Ashimoto of Sendai Girls, arguably two of the biggest hitters in professional wrestling, in different styles of professional wrestling. Having a proper dad fight or mum fight, I think you'd probably call this, because uh, that was ace. That was just absolute genius. You to get your two big hitters to just like battle off against each other. It oh, and was then great pause fun. Partway through, just batter everyone else who tried to get. I just looked. Yeah. Like, it was a nice little character moment as well, because obviously Hashimoto threw away 
and Dash Chizako, who's her actual Sendai girl's friend, you're just like, oh, <laughs> that's how Andy, it's going to be, is it? Andy Wata too, who's another Sendai girl's friend. Um, <laughs> it's just like no friends in the battle royale, especially no, no, when no. two people are having a horse fight. Yes, when when you're when you're trying to like you know outmuscle the guy who outweighs you by eight pounds, and then chuck him around like used luggage. I'd like to point out Hashimoto's release German small release release German was insane because he yeah. nearly landed on the other side of the ring. Oh, it was ace. Uh, then there was some very recognizable music as a former ECW ever openweight and Wrestle One heavyweight champion of the world turned up, and that would be Masato Tanaka, which was awesome. Like this is it. You just you think about the fact that we've got new school, old school comedy. Hell, we missed out the the um and like the entire six 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 roster just. Oh, yeah. up with Andres Miyagi. Like, <laughs> this is the first time I've seen Onryo in action in quite some time, and he's just there with his band of ghouls. The only thing missing was, like, Session Moth Martina with a vacuum cleaner again to try and get Iger. <laughs> it was incredible. Like, that was incredible, because I love 666, but I can barely ever watch them, so to see them all in action was quite incredible. Uh, just like on a quick aside, as of today, uh, Cassandra Miyagi is sorry, San Andras Miyagi is no longer Andras Miyagi. She is now Michiko Miyagi, as she has joined Gleet and um, changed all her gear and has gone back to gone to being kind of a straight up Joshi. Hmm, interesting. Yes, I, I think great I've, things about Gleet. I've not had a chance to watch it yet. Yeah, I think well, she left. Stardom, what, a few months ago after... I don't understand how you don't make money with Cassandra Miyagi. How do you not make money with that woman? She's uh, terrifying. She like, is She's the most original wrestling character in Japanese wrestling by a long, long way. Sendai Girls pushed her to the moon and made her a star, and then she signed with Stardom and they did not with her. <laughs> like... It's... And I'm wondering. I know. I know the rumors are that since the um, takeover by Bushy Road, that they're kind of like concentrating on the more feminine women, and that was the problem. <sighs> but um, I don't know. That's a rumor. That's why I hear. And it's like, but she's absolutely gorgeous. She wrestles a streak, and she's an incredible character wrestler. Why would you not want her? It's Just to stop anyone. <laughs> why would you why would you just not want her to stop anyone else having her you idiots anyway let us move on uh but yeah that was awesome too moan over uh then jin seishinzaki president of sendai girls came out and tried to do the old school which on everyone in the battle royal this was a 16 at once um top wrist lock before I climbed to the top rope where he was pushed off by the two people he forgot to armbar. He, <laughs> he missed the best entrant. And who had the best moment? Who had the best moment? Jun Kasai. I ain't got to that yet, just because he's further down on the list. I was coming back to Jun Kasai. Oh, you're going by elimination order, not Yeah, I am. Yeah, because that's order. the list. Because uh, it's, it's reminding me of stuff as I go through it. Right. Uh, but yeah, Jun Kasai came in. Jun Kasai was awesome. And discovered that Miki Iwata 
loves him and she asked for his autograph. Which I think is fair enough. I love the fact that everyone else in the Battle Royale gave him enough time to sign it as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then they formed a partnership for the rest of the match. Um, which, as you can imagine, in a Battle Royale, did turn sour towards the end. Ultimate betrayal. <laughs> Ultimate yes. betrayal. Well, yeah, but, you know, she, 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 I love Miku Iwata. She's awesome. She's really, really cool. Mm. I think she possibly could be the best all-rounder of the Sendai girls by the time she's finished. Um, she's just, I've been watching her since she was a rookie, and the poise she's kind of got now compared to where she was, um, you know, she, she wrestles well beyond her years. And I, it's, I think they're kind of putting a lot on her with the, well, we're putting a lot on everybody with the Sendai Girls, with the Sendai Girls versus Marvelous thing to reform Gaia at the moment. So I'll be interested to see where that goes. Um, I expected Suzu Suzuki to make an appearance just so she could start battering the hardcore guys again. <laughs> Did you hear what happened this week with Suzu Suzuki? Yes, that is going to be incredible. If you've got she... Onita's attention, you're doing shit right. She has been signed to the new FMWE and will be the main female star of the company from Anita's point of view. So that's really, really interesting. Something we need to talk about with our friend Brett in a couple of weeks' time. But anyway, back to the show. Seema from from OWE and AEW, and of course, originally of Dragon Gate, uh, another legend turns up and has a blast, clearly. This is it. Uh, They're all there to have fun. It's like nobody's here to sort of look better than anyone else. They were just there like, right, we know what we're here for. We know what this is. Let's just have a blast. <laughs> and then it came down to your final four or five. Junkasai Lita delimited Dash Jusaka. We've been there since the beginning. Junkasai and Miki Iwata teamed up to get rid of Yuki Miyamoto. And then Miki Iwata turned on Junkasai and eliminated him which left Seema, Masata, Tanaka versus Miku Iwato and Ram Keicho. And uh, Ram ended up winning when she defeated the two living legends in Masato, Tanaka and Seema. But I don't think the boys were winning this one, were they? It was kind of funny because they thought of... Because Ram Keicho was really short. They were just like, oh, there's something there. And then just fought over her to hit each other so she's like don't you dare ignore me and kick them both out the ring <laughs> <laughs> yeah no this was this was just a blast Japanese battle royals are a bit strange because they are generally arranged just to be fun they're not taken seriously there's very few battle royals that actually get you anywhere because they're just booked as a ridiculous entertainment basically because pinfalls and submissions count in Japanese battle royals which makes things move along a lot quicker. And because no one has a pretense there's going to be serious stuff awarded for winning it, it all just kind of flows better, in my opinion. I mean, some All Japan used to run an annual battle royal every January just to have some fun, because All Japan's dead serious, but they're just like, you know, get rid of two people at once by to somebody doing a roll-up and then rolling them over and just, just stuff like that. It's like some of the greatest professional wrestlers in the world just having a blast. <laughs> I hey, just well, love I the fact they gave the win to Ram because I absolutely adore Ram, and Ram's ace. he's one of the coolest people in Japanese wrestling. Like, period. I just love everything about her, from her wrestling style to her image to the fact she just gives everyone the one finger salute. It's <laughs> hilarious. 
yeah, no, it was just it was just perfect. It was the best way to celebrate things. And as Cheeseburger and Ian Riccoboni uh, were saying on commentary, this there's a lot of stuff going on in wrestling that is is not great, and they wanted just to entertain people and have fun, and that's what the show was about. Uh, even cool words from Diana Parasso, who was watching in America, she said it was such a fun show, and she had such a blast watching it. Yeah, it's genuinely. I I saw that this match had a thirty minute runtime, and I'm just like, it didn't feel like it. It's one uh, of the sort of just. It's a breeze to watch. It's always entertaining, and someone is always doing something to either get a laugh or just keep the pace moving. Like Cherry being the ultimate shit stirrer of the battle right now. <laughs> She's like, oh, we're gonna get him. We'll get her. Why are you all turning on me? What did I do? <laughs> Yeah, there always has to be one of them in a Japanese battle royal. Um, usually it's Gado or Jado. They were quite good at that back in the day. Um, but And still are. So it's one of the key things that keeps Bullet Club moving forward. Um, or Banana, <laughs> Sen- Banana Senga being the ultimate troll. And yeah. ruining Jinsei, Shinzaki's ultimate arm. Like, old school. <laughs> Okay, we had a bit of a break then, as you can probably imagine, because, you know, Oh, we're going to read the full list. Oh, yes. Do you want to read the full list? Go for it. So, on my end result, it is Ram Kai Cho defeated Aiga, Gabai Ji-chan, Andres Miyagi, Banana Senga, Cherry, Chichihiro Hashimoto, Dash Chizako, Fuminari Abe, Hagan Shino, Sakura Hirota, Hinako Nakamori, Jinsei Shinzaki, Jun Kansai, Lingerie Muto, Masaki. Can we stop there a second? We should explain Lingerie Muto before we go any further. Oh, we, we've got to talk about the legend. Okay, so is Lingerie Muto. Muto. Lingerie Muto is a wrestler whose real name is Murano Saiwa. He's 42 years old. He's from Tokyo, and he wrestles exactly in the style of the great Muta, except for the fact he does it whilst wearing lingerie. And when I say lingerie, I mean like the full lingerie plus some extra bras on his head. Carry on, carry on, John. Three on his torso, full laundry, and two on his head. And he left a lot of them behind in this match. (laughs) Uh, Unsurprisingly, he was trained by Kai and Tai Dojo and DDT Pro Wrestling. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. Yes, carry on. Lingerie Muto, Masato Tanaka, Shima, Mensori Oaji, the sentient Sodokan. I'm guessing it was either... Some kind, it looked like some kind of mascot. Mika Iwata, Miyu, Miyuki Takasim, Moeka Haruhi, Onryo, Shotaro Ashino, Super Delphine, Tsutsomi Usugi, Yuki Miyazaki, Yuko Miyamoto, another deathmatch legend, and Yusuke Kodama. That was your list of entrants in mostly <laughs> alphabetical order and whatever order I wrote them in. Here's, here's an interesting thing for you. We've just been talking about Lingerie Muto. Um, and he was trained by Yuki Ishikawa, right? Right. Um, so I went and checked out Yushiki, Yuki Ishikawa. Because I'm like, I know that name from somewhere. Yuki Ishikawa was trained by Yoshiyuki Fujiwara and Carl Gotch. And Boris Malenko. Jesus. <laughs> He, he, he was a pro, pro wrestling Fujiwara Gumi guy 
uh, he, he was a badass shooter. Uh, you know, those are the kinds of people that will teach you how to murder people. <laughs> I feel like we've uh, talked about him before. We have. Um, and he still wrestles uh, for All Japan, for Noah, and for Wrestle Extreme Wrestling, WXW in Germany. He had a couple of matches for them last year. Um, just thought I'd just play that in there. But it's, this is how you get from like one step away from comedy wrestler to the legends of professional wrestling is just like, just wait 20 years. <laughs> well, this is it. It's, it's like, sure, wrestling's a serious art, but like, especially in Japan, they let themselves have fun every now and then. Exactly. Because there's a market for so much variety. It's like, I suppose you've got Orange Cassidy in the States, one of the best wrestlers AEW has but also mm. one of the most likable comedy gimmicks of a generation. Yeah. It's like... I, and just to say, if you if you think that Orange Cassidy can't wrestle, go over, look at Fire Ant from Shikara, and you'll see that he can. Like, comedy wrestling doesn't mean you can't wrestle. It just means you want to wrestle a style that makes people laugh. <laughs> yes. And it's been around for a long, long time. Um, and some of the best wrestlers I've ever seen have been comedy wrestlers. Uh, Wes Kellett, for instance, was an incredible wrestler. So was Brian Glover. If you haven't seen Brian Glover versus Wes Kellett, is still one of the most entertaining wrestling matches you will ever see and will be forever because it is two great performers who know exactly how to get things out of an, out of an audience in the perfect manner. I looked at Konosuke Takashita. One of the aces of DDT put on yeah. a David Lynch style horror movie match that took it <laughs> out of the Boneyard match with a with the, the sentient evil doll Yoshihiko. Like you can have range. Yeah, that's in it. wrestling. It is not forbidden. No, Les Kellett, by the way, one of the toughest wrestlers who ever lived. Like genuinely a hard case to the point of being like you know questionably mentally stable uh once <laughs> wrestling adrian street one night who was our case himself and he took a bump face first onto the floor and he said that wasn't he said he, he got up with pulling concrete out of his eyebrows and he said that was not to impress the crowd that was to impress me <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, oh. Wow. yes <laughs> making the point <laughs> yeah um, but anyway, let us move on to the semi-main event, as, as our American friends would say. Um, Asuka, the non-gendered wrestler, Mio Monono, Mio Mono, Momono, I'll get it right in the end. I was going to say that, hell of a name. Momono, Momono, yes. And Seiru defeated representatives of Odo Tai, Hazuki, and Kigetsu, both coming out of retirement for this match. And current Odeo Tai uh, wrestlers, Death Yamasan and Konami, who were formerly Tokyo Cyber Squad wrestlers, who took on Tokyo Cyber Squad colors for the night to represent Hannah Kimura, because um, she was obviously the founder of Tokyo Cyber Squad. But Hannah was also a member of Odeo Tai because her mother was the founder of Odeo Tai back in the early days of Stardom when she founded. Uh, Kimura Monster Gun with, of course, friend of the show, Alpha Female and Haley Hatred back in 2014, which essentially evolved into what would become Odo Tai, uh, the biggest female 
uh, faction really in wrestling. But the reason why it got big was basically because of Azuki and Kigetsu, because they were the perfect leaders for that particular organization. I feel, anyway. And it was absolutely amazing to see them out of retirement and to go as hard as they possibly could for as long as they possibly could. Um, what did you think of this match, John? Because it was breathtakingly good. Yeah, this was incredible. Like, just the list of people in the match to begin with is awesome. You've got Kagetsu and Hazuki out of retirement, still on top form, still as badass as ever. Death Yamasan being Death Yamasan to keep things slightly, like, sort of less... Happy. Well, not serious, <laughs> but, like, energetic. <laughs> like, don't, don't let the, the sort of moniker fool you. K.R. Yonayama is one hell of a wrestler and probably a legend of Joshi at this point. And then... Like Konami, Sayuri, there just to kill each other with strikes. She's the only, yeah, yeah. Yanayama is the only wrestler I know of who stopped her ten bell count at nine, so she didn't have to retire. I do love the fact that she's got Death Yamasan. She also wrestles as a clown, and then elsewhere is just Kr Yanayama. And all the time, she is a manic badass. <laughs> like, you could have all the different personas in the world, but, like, she's still the same, like, lunatic. <laughs> she is. She, she used to have a badass team with Emi Sakura that was awesome to watch. They were so fast and Rita. so ridiculous. Yeah, it was just amazing. And she is the only person that I know who's done the Chaos Theory uh, rolling German suplex that Doug Williams invented correctly and because she's so short she manages to do it like in half the space and it's quite a remarkable thing to watch when she does do it <laughs> uh, but yeah she's absolutely awesome and again one of the best comedy wrestlers in the world it's like the amount of references and stories they managed to pack into this one match <laughs> didn't even go 20 minutes was incredible like you had Kagetsu and Hazuki trying to prove they could still go. You had the little Tokyo Cyber Squad throwback that Konami ruined because Konami is Konami. <laughs> Natsupoi, Sayuri, trying to represent Donna Del Mondo. And then Asuka there just because they are pretty much the greatest free agent on the Japanese scene at the moment, so... There was genuinely so much going on that all blended really nicely into a traditional tag farmer. Yeah, it it, it just works well. Asuka, she's something else. And she's something quite special. She was trained by Yoki Yamada. And to be honest with you, we probably haven't seen this kind of explosion in a freelance talent since Aoki Yamada. <laughs> like Aoki Yamada between 1998 and 2005 wasn't just one of the best wrestlers on earth she was at Kenta Kabashi Misawa, Minami Toyota Ric Flair, Luthez level of good and she could do it all and Asuka is pretty much in that territory at the moment I think I think she's the, the thing is like when Mako Satomura signed with WWE and when uh, well, Asuka also signed with WWE, not so much with um, 
uh, Kairi, Hojo and Io Shirai because they were exclusive to one company. But when Asuka and Okana, as she was then, and Miki Satomura left for the WWE, there was no big overall indie draw. And that's a hole that's taken some filling. But Asuka is kind of there, I think. I mean, they're the perfect representative for almost any wrestling fan. Like, yeah, they're genderless. So you can either side can take some appeal in it. They're incredibly sassy. They have an incredible move set, and they are incredibly young. Still, yes, so twenty-two. <laughs> they've got an entire career ahead of them, and it's only going to get better. Like they could rock up in any company right now, and you'd be like, "Of course, why wouldn't they be there?" It yeah, that level of talent doesn't come along very often, and. Thankfully, Asuka has the perfect, like, attitude and motivation to make the most of it. Yeah. I think there was a few people who could have taken that spot. I think Sayuru could have been one, but I think she probably made a wise move in taking a good job with Stardom that will keep her home and well-paid, <laughs> <laughs> rather than wrestling and fighting in UFC and Pancras and, you know being hardcore like shooter that she is because that's that's a career short career in the long run um but yeah asker is just outstanding there's a person that could have taken that mantle was sari but she's also signed with WWE. so i think asker is just going to be a big star in japan for a long time to come who can pretty much name her price if she keeps going the way she is like yeah and that... that's sorry i've Again, I can't stop talking about how cool Asker actually is. They just <laughs> they were at Chocker Pro for like a big pencil army war match and they did a moonsault off Chris Brooks. They literally <laughs> just he folded up into a stepping stone and they did a moonsault like in a very small space and pulled it off. It was quite incredible. There was an outdoor show a couple of months ago and there was a picture where she because they did um a moonsault off the balcony. And there was a picture of them moonsaulting off the balcony coming from the crowd. And it looks like she they were um, moonsaulting into cherry blossoms. Yeah, that I saw that picture. Like, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's one of the best wrestling photo- like photographs I've ever seen. Yeah, outstanding. And then, of course, Hazuki and Kagetsu out of retirement for one match and one match only. Um... Hazuki doesn't look like she's missed a step at all, and Kigetsu looked as good as she ever did. I've been a massive fan of Kigetsu for around about eight years when she first became as uh, like the secondary draw to um, make us that more in Gaia Girls. She's been an outstanding professional wrestler. I was so sad to see her retire, but she hasn't got a neck anymore. And the fact she came out to do one match was actually quite remarkable. And as you will see, she did a second match <laughs> that night as well. The only thing that kind of worried me about it was the amount of help she needed to leave the ring once she'd done all her work because she closed the show as kind of a representative of the wrestlers with Kiyoki Okamura before the tribute video was shown. And then um, Hazuki had to help her up off the floor because she couldn't actually stand up straight. So I hope she has actually recovered and I hope she doesn't wrestle again in the nicest possible sense because I don't want her doing herself any long-term damage. I hope she's done if that makes sense. And if this is going to be it, I think she had an incredible evening to show how great she actually was. Yeah, this definitely felt like her 
passing of the torch match to a degree yeah. because you had what was essentially the former race of Japanese wrestling taking on what is one of the newer aces of Japanese wrestling and they went hell for leather for about 10 minutes and yeah just no yeah. hold barred sort of greatest hits style <laughs> match with a took, whole lot of attitude it was awesome it took four finishes to put Kigetsu away Kigetsu is just a, another level professional wrestler she I mean she when she first really kind of came to prominence in what 2013 2014 as a Sendai girl that big feud with Ice Ribbon and then over the next few years kind of really coming out of her shell as a solo star leaving Sendai Girls, going to, you know, Oz Academy and working years as an independent superstar, and then going to stardom and taking over the dojo from uh, Kari Hojo and Io Shirai. She really put her authority on that company and was the ace of the company for a long time, and she was the big star. And I miss watching her wrestle. Um, I really, really do because she was one of the people when I first really got back into Joshi in, in the early 2010s who really lit a fire under me to be a fan because she was so good and she's still so good and that's great but I'm happy that this might be her last match or I'm hoping it's her last match I don't want to put her body through that again I also respected the hell out of her because she could do death matches <laughs> <laughs> she could do it all I mean she's shoot style she could aerial wrestle a bit but you know she, she her big money was suplexes and kicks. That's where she really, as you'd expect a student to make her Satamura, perhaps her greatest student, um, you know, to really excel at is kicking people really hard and throwing them around the ring. So that's where she was really, really good. But yeah, it was amazing. And then that main event, 8.65 from the guys at Cage Match, 9.02 for the tag match. Um, even the Battle Royal got 7.84. This show was rated uh, overall um, 9.89 for the whole show, which is one of the highest rated shows this year. Um, it was 9.94 because someone has put a five in it for no apparent reason. Because <laughs> um, obviously some jerk will say there's no such thing as a perfect show. Um, but yeah, this was outstanding. Um and then we finished with the, the video tribute to Hannah, which I will say I haven't watched for no other reason of the fact that I think it might quite upset me. I'd rather watch that by myself for no other reason than to watch it and have happy memories. But after all, all that intense wrestling, I didn't really want to see it because I think it might have upset me quite a lot as I've had a bit of sensitive year with that stuff and I'm sure you all know why. Um, and it was absolutely stunning to watch this match. Watch this match at main event. What's your thoughts on the whole card, John? Can can you hear the the very loud Hoover? No. Oh wow, the sound cancelling on this is really working well. Um, yeah, this this show was amazing. Um, I I thought I was going to struggle to re like review it because, as we both said at the start of the show, this. Like, Hannah Kimura's death really fucked both of us up quite a lot for different reasons, but I've never felt quite so happy watching a show that's just designed to be happy. There's 
celebrations galore, stories galore, just fun memories and messages and tributes throughout. And yeah, even my sort of stone heart sort of felt something by the end of it. It's <laughs> it's one of those shows that you go into with sort of cynical or sad expectations and you're just blown away by the fact that so many people can come together no egos got in the way and yeah there was just an excellent show to digest yes it was just fun absolute fun and that's what we really wanted this show to be so thank you hannah for everything you did for joshi puraresu and thank you for being a great professional wrestler and thank you to everyone who put this show together especially for fight tv for covering it worldwide and really allowing everybody to enjoy it it's been a great production and uh, i hope everybody else enjoyed it so uh we're going to move on to new jack but we recorded this on tuesday i'm not going to put our usual ending because obviously that would be our usual end so the theme tune will happen in a second and then on the other side the new jack show will start and we'll start from the beginning because you know the intro is half the fun isn't it thank you for listening to us talk about hannah though we really really appreciate it she meant an awful lot to us And I'll see you, or we'll see you, on the other side of this little sting. Yes, to the people of the pack. Hello and welcome to the Troopity Show. My name's James Troopity. This is my show. And as you can tell by my tone, myself and John Beasdale have been having a little laugh before we started. However, we shouldn't be. This is a tribute show. We're talking about New Jack today. Having said that, I think New Jack would appreciate a little laughter along the way. He was a dude who liked to laugh. But he was a controversial figure for many, many reasons. And he was a controversial professional wrestler. And he very much gave his body to the industry. John, what are your first thoughts when you think of New Jack? Usually people getting messed up very, very badly. Because New Jack was a very special type of wrestler. He was as real as real gets most of the time. And if you were going into a fight with him, you were going into a fight with him. The only trick he ever pulled was that he didn't have a loaded staple gun. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, well, he did pull a few other tricks, I think, as well, down the years. I was going to say, we've got a lot to dive into covering you, Jack. <laughs> a lot of it is self-admitted. I've read his autobiography. We've probably all seen the Dark Side of the Ring episode. He He gave nothing. He gave no fucks whatsoever. No, absolutely not. Very honest <laughs> about his mess, like how messed up he was, how messed up he'd been through wrestling, the fact he became a bounty hunter when wrestling dried up, trying to kill opponents. It's it's all it's all such good fun. Yeah, you're right. It absolutely is true. I mean, I. I have mixed feelings about him because as a worker, he wasn't a classical professional wrestler. Let's be honest. However, for by any metric, a wrestler is successful by the amount of tickets he sells and by God, do he sell tickets? And I'm probably going to get heat again for this because Nick <laughs> Penn Spindler accused me of suggesting I said, someone you're going to get into trouble for comparing somebody to Andre the Giant. But New Jack was ECW's Andre the Giant. He was a 
special attraction in the every sense of the word. He didn't need a title to make money. He just needed to be New Jack. That's all he needed. If he came in and he used some weapons and he jumped off a balcony, the fans were going home happy. And it didn't matter if it was for a title or not. Everything worked. He didn't he was... need a match either. They could just give him a live mic and he'd send people home happy because he was one of the most natural talkers there will ever be. Yeah, like, that was it. New Jack is such a unique case because he went from classical wrestling, which he was good at, but not like ex like he was never gonna excel at it, and then ended EZW and became one of the most notoriously hard hitting, like weapons fighters there will ever be. He he is notorious for the, being one of people's first thoughts when it comes to ECW. You've got the likes of Tommy Dreamer, Sandman, RVD, and New Jack. They'll be the four people like that will come to mind when you think of ECW. And for good reason. The amount of stuff New Jack did to his body, to other people, for the sake of ECW is incredible. Yeah, he is. It's just... It's an insane level of commitment. That kind of was the ECW calling card, and he's one of... Um, he's one of those guys that kind of embodied the ECW spirit more than anybody else, perhaps a little too much in what he was willing to give to the fans and to give of his body. And that was the intriguing thing for me. Like he and Paul Heyman do not, did not get along towards the end of his life. Paul Heyman was very generous about him on SmackDown, but there was decided uh, problems between the two individuals after the closure of ECW and the way that Jer- uh, Jerome Young was treated by Paul Heyman, not the way that Paulie dangerously treated New Jack, if that makes sense. So, you know, th- there's such a duality with his life. He's incredibly honest about the, the problems he's had, you know, um, and the attitude that he has to, had, that he had to life. Um, you know, it, and I think as well, it tells an awful lot. He'd lived a life before he got to pro wrestling. He was 29 as a rookie. Which, by any standards, is old, isn't it, really? Well, he was supposed to become a football star, but um, a stint in jail kind of ruined that. Yeah, he did start at high school. He, he, his parents moved, well, his mother moved around quite a lot, and they ended up going to Georgia, where he worked around the, the, the Atlanta school system for a while, settled into one school, and actually became quite a good football player on defense for his high school, which was DM Ferrell High School in Atlanta. Um, and then he got scouted by North Carolina A&T and various other college programs uh, in his high school days. But uh, yeah, him and his friends had a few dalliances with the law, which will preclude you from a college education of that particular ilk because, you know, college football players are worth an awful lot of money to the college and any PR disasters, and let's be honest, New Jack was a walking PR disaster, <laughs> uh, they don't need to deal with. Uh, there's plenty of other people who are just as good as you are at that level. So, yes, sadly for him, football was not in the cards, but it gave him an incredible natural athletic build, which he could use to create a professional wrestling character, and he was just the right guy to do that with, I think. Yeah. He really took to wrestling quite well, especially once he was given the proper sort of TV time. 
on Smoky Mountain Wrestling, which ironically is where we're going to start. It is. Yeah, we'll give give a rough idea. I mean, he started in the USWA in 1992. He was trained by Ray Candy, who me and Daryl looked at when he he tagged with the Boogie Woogie Man in Puerto Rico on the Hot Night and Buy a Moon podcast we did quite a few weeks, a few months last this time last year, I think, or earlier. Sorry, did you just say there was a wrestler called the Boogie Woogie Man? Have you not heard of the Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant? I I've heard of the Boogie Man, but I've never heard of the Boogie Woogie Man. No. Oh lordy, you need I've to probably... go back. <laughs> I've probably heard of the wrestler by other names, but not the Boogie Woogie Man. Boogie Woogie Jim Man, Jimmy Valiant. Yeah, I've heard of Jimmy oh. Valiant. Yeah, never he's... heard that. Never heard that prefix before. He used after the Valiant Brothers tag team, which was a heel team in the nineteen seventies, broke up. He became the Boogie Woogie Man, and uh, he became a big babyface. Big babyface in the Carolinas. He feuded with um, the Great Kabuki over the NWA Television Championship, and that match was at the first arcade. That sounds incredible. Yeah, there you go. And it was, because Gary Hart was managing the Great Kabuki. You could not get a more classic NWA wrestling lineup. So, you're going to go back and watch the first arcade now, aren't you? I know we covered the Great Kabuki (laughs) when we did the old Memphis TV episode. Mm. He was a great wrestler. I'm going to have to look that up. Okay, then. we're getting sidetracked again. But Ray Candy was on that show, Hot Night by Moon. Um, and he trained uh, New Jack how to wrestle, and he took up the name New Jack from the film New Jack City. By the way, Wesley Snipes at his finest. You should watch New Jack City. It is an It's incredible. really, really cool. Yeah, it, it's also massively disjointed because it appears like they shot bits that just didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you watch the movie and all of a sudden it jumps six months and you're like, what? <laughs> Hey, it's like um, Christopher Nolan got his idea for storytelling. Yeah, uh, Chris Rock was also in it, and also um, Ice Cube too, which of course is uh, you know pertinent to the rest of this particular story because it mixes an awful lot of hip hop into it. Um, after a stint in the USWA, he went to North, North Georgia Wrestling Alliance, where he tagged found his tag team partner Mustafa Saeed, who was a former WCW jobber uh, or enhancement talent. It's a polite way of saying it. Um, um, and they won the NGWA Tag Team Championship in July 1994. Uh, but they quickly located them when one James E. Cornette offered them a job in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And boy, did they come in like gangbusters. James E. Cornette is a fan of old school wrestling. And if you look at old school booking in the South of heel tag teams, you book them on top from the start. That's where you come in. If they're heels, you give them the belt straight away or you give them a big feud straight away and you let them run with it. And they let the gangsters run with it. And it was brilliant. The matches they started with, um, as I'm watching the uh, the USWA, the, sorry, the SMW stuff now, they come out to the ring with their own entourage. They come out with four uh, bodyguards they're carrying weapons, well, the, the interviews, they're carrying weapons, but they come out to the ring with four bodyguards. They don't trust the police. This is a bunch of stuff. <laughs> is it not? Because... It is incredibly um, accurate. 
shall we say, to how society might have felt in the 90s. Yes. That's well, it. not even the 90s. Bloody now. <laughs> um, well, here's the thing. As, at one point, as New Jack says it in one particular interview during this process, well done to my boy OJ Simpson. One less we have to worry about. Which is grim. <laughs> to be fair, and... Jim Carnett just said, right, go out there and offend a bunch of white people. And New Jack did exactly that from day one in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. He knew exactly what buttons to push. It... Now, yeah. I mean, if you've not watched Smoky Mountain Wrestling before, I don't know about the promotion. Smoky Mountain is as old school as wrestling gets. Even in the promotions, they're saying wrestling how you've always liked it. And that's that's kind of where they were coming from. And it's it's Smoky Mountain, so it's Kentucky. You know, it's the it's the 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 Smoky Mountain region of the mid South United States of America. They they work Ohio and they work Kentucky, and it's a lot of white people <laughs> <laughs> who may own guns and have uh, well nowadays they probably have Blue Lives Matters flags hanging off the front porch. If you see what I mean, you know, before like those type of people started not trusting the place. Um, yeah. So um, they, it, it isn't necessarily, well, yes, it is. It's pressing on basic racism of what Jim Cornette was counting on because Jim Cornette grew up in the South and he was counting on his audience being quite racist, to be honest with you. And that's what happened. And, you know, I, we both have issues with Mr. Cornette and his opinions, which perhaps he could just close his mouth every once in a while. Um, but he was also making commentary on the audience he was trying to take money off of. Um, this is it. Cornette, in, up until like 2010, probably, was fine because everyone was still following the teachings he'd made. He was happy. His impact was still positive. Now everyone just knows him as the guy everyone wants to give a coronary to by subjecting him to wrestling they know he doesn't like. Here, it was perfect. He he gave New Jack the best bit of advice he'd probably ever get. Go out there, piss off white people, and New Jack was New Jack ever since. Yeah. He, he never shied away from just cutting promos that would piss people off or make people love him. He... Jim Carnett unleashed a monster, and that monster, for better or worse, is probably one of his greatest creations. Undoubtedly. And, you know, you have to like Smoky Mountain Wrestling just because of the production values are good for a small independent company. It looked as good as anything WCW produced at the time, and a little better than what ECW were producing at the time because they put money into it, basically. Um, but, you know, you've got... The, the classic SMW combo of Bob Cordell on commentary and somebody else on color commentary whose name I couldn't figure out. <laughs> but Bob Cordell is one of the all-time classic Southern commentators. He worked for the NWA back in the 1970s and 1980s, and he just bumbles along and tells a story. He's the, he's, he's the guy you get when you can't get Lance Russell, basically. And at one point, WCW had him and Lance Russell which is one of the smoothest talking commentary teams you've ever heard. It's quite remarkable. Because um, <laughs> at one point, WCW would spend money on commentators hand over fist. You wouldn't believe. They had Bob Cordell, Jim Ross, 
um, Gordon Soley, Glance Russell. They have literally the who's who list of commentators. Paul Heyman on colour, Jesse Ventura, Bobby Heenan. This is all in a 10-year period. It's quite yeah. remarkable. Yeah, but Smoky Mountain Wrestling picked up Bob Cordell when he kind of got let go by WCW. And, I mean, and there's also the referee, Mark Curtis, who's there, who's like one of the all-time, ref- all-time referees. Sadly, wouldn't be with us for much longer after this, um, unfortunately for him. But an outstanding wrestling talent and mind. Um, Mick Foley described him as the best wrestler that no one had ever seen because he's five foot two and 145 pounds and couldn't put weight on no matter what he did. So he wrestled all sorts of aerial stuff. He wrestled deathmatch stuff. He wrestled all sorts of things because he could wrestle any style he wanted to and he could do anything he wanted to, but he just wasn't big enough to be a professional wrestler in that particular era. Um, and he's a guy who's kind of, you can actually see, I'm looking at him now. He's coaching them as they go along because Mustafa Saeed is big and green. You know, he is, again, not a classically trained wrestler <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. They kind of go into their matches and just brawl. It's New Jack's there to do the wrestling stuff. Saeed's there to look big and hurt, hit people every now and then. Yeah. And, you know, these are proper 90s squash matches. They're amazing. Like, they're just destroying people. I was just laughing at the commentary like, oh, they're finally going to get some offense. And oh, no, they're not. <laughs> it's just like, this sort of nice build of oh is is this jobber team going to get to do anything nope the gangsters have killed them that's it no, Game no that's it no <laughs> no this is not what you're here for you are here <laughs> to have your ass whooped and boy did they whoop ass interesting finishes of a flying head a, a jump assisted flying headbutt um, yeah they weren't exactly the rock and roll express were they however they were there to get heat. And boy, did we get a comparison of how they weren't the Rock and Roll Express. <laughs> to be fair, the match with the Rock and Roll Express wasn't bad, considering you've got just the Rock and Roll Express babyface beat down for a lot of the match. It is, it's, it's, it's a formulaic Rock and Roll Express match. And there's nothing wrong with a formulaic Rock and Roll Express match. It's sold a shitload of tickets, you know, for 20-odd years. And the fact that the Rock and Roll Express managed to appear in AEW, um, Impact Wrestling, AEW, and the NWA, and Ring of Honor, all in the space of 18 months, despite the combined age of 130, you know, that'll tell you how good they were. They're still a valuable act. Ricky Martin's going to be on another GCW show soon. I can't remember the exact one. I think it might be one of the Texas. Is it the Texas? Yeah, of course he is, because he's Ricky friggin' Martin, you know. The best thing is that Ricky Martin's out there doing Destroyers. Yeah, I was going to say, Ricky Martin turned up at 65 and started doing Canadian Destroyers to just brighten things up a bit. You know, if if you're, like, looking for your crazy ass wrestlers of the 1980s. (laughs) Um, But, yeah. Just on a little sidetrack of crazy old, like old men, Ornita's announced the first cont- like contenders for the death match from hell. It's going to be Onita, Ricky Fuji, and Minoru Fujita against Abdullah Kobayashi and two random teammates. Of course it is. Also, it's... they're also holding the first ever 
uh, four-way uh, death match for women, which is like a bid can... for weapons. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I think that's a clever system. I like that. Yeah, so you you pour you put a bid in yen in real time on which weapons you would like to see used, and then they are released to the wrestlers, which is genius. But anyway, surprisingly good because the tickets themselves to watch the stream are only about a tenner. There you go. Awesome. Um, yeah, there's some classic wrestling stuff in this. It's classic rock and roll match, in one sense. To start with, the gangsters are trying to wrestle the Rock and Roll Express. Really, where did they get that idea from? And then it's just sell until they get an opening, and then beat the Rock and Roll Express as much as they possibly can, until basically Ricky can get to Robert, and that's then that's it. <laughs> yeah, the ending is so abrupt. It's, it's such a non-impact ending. Pretty, isn't it just a roll-up? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, what more do you need, though? I'm just looking at the ending now. It just seems a bit anticlimactic. I mean, I know it was like match one of a, like a feud, but like, come on. If the gangsters are going to lose, have them lose properly. I just oh, Ricky, Ricky, Ricky to Roberted, Ricky to Robert, if that makes sense. And then Big Whip. Back elbow, kick New Jack out of the ring, go after Mustafa. Hey, um, Mustafa wasn't bad, was he? Really? He was no. all right. He did exactly no. what he needed to. Yeah. Um, he was absolutely nothing with New Jack, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But, like, he wasn't the compelling part of the tag team. However, he was not a bad wrestler by any stretch of the imagination. He used to smoke pencil shavings. Nice. That's one of the. <laughs> That's one of the anecdotes that they say in the Dark Side of the Ring episode. It's like, New Jack's like, oh, he was smoking pencil shavings, trying to get me to smoke pencil shavings. Did they ask D'Lo Brown if this is true, and D'Lo Brown just goes, no comment. That's how you were smoking pencil shavings. I, I, I have to admit, I have not watched the Dark Side of the Ring at all, or any of the episodes. We discussed this with Chelsea on Sunday in our, in our roundup of wrestling all over the world thing. Uh, that we did, but it is like I haven't watched the Dark Side of the Ring just because I think basically I've had that many negative wrestling stories down the years, and currently there's an awful lot of negative stuff about pro wrestling that I'm just sick of listening to it. <laughs> and I just don't fair, want when, to. When they say Dark Side of the Ring, a fair few of them are kind of hopeful. Like the Nick Gage one's pretty good. It's oh no, I, I can I can understand that. I just am not in the mood for it, and I don't know why. It like. Ten years ago, it's exactly the kind of thing I would have absolutely lapped up. But at the minute, it just doesn't interest me. And I don't know why. Oh, God. We're about to get to one of the funniest things I've seen ever. <laughs> the gangsters okay, versus the heavenly bodies from well, just, the 28th of January. Well, let's just finish talking about rock and roll and the, new, and, and the gangsters, because that's the important kind of big money feud that really set the gangsters off into superstardom. They really made money and they really sold tickets. It was the biggest ticket item in Smoky Mountain Wrestling for a long time because of, because New Jack was so controversial with his promos and SMW fans hated him for it and they hated the gangsters. They also laid it on thick with the politics. They also insisted that affirmative action was part became part of the angle saying that they only needed a two-count and white teams needed a three-count. Which is, you know, again, it's playing with your audience and it's making a commentary on your audience, you know, because, like, the gangsters really should have been the babyfaces. 
I'm not suggesting the Rock and Roll Express are an example of white privilege. They clearly aren't <laughs> because they worked incredibly hard for what they did. But you know what I mean? It was literally yeah. pressing every political button they could find to make this feud work. And it made the gangsters absolute superstar heels. And somehow this ties, again, because I'm, I'm trying to segue, this ties so nicely with the fact that in this next match, after that feud, Jim Cornette brings in the heavenly bodies to try and kick the shit out of them. And somehow the gangsters are still the bad guys. This is it. This is, this is the heavenly bodies. The ultimate heel tag teams in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. The ultimate heels in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. The biggest heels in the company's history. Arguably the greatest tag team in the company's history. Which whichever particular lineup, whether it was Sweet Stan and Dr. Tom or Jimmy Del Rey and Dr. Tom, they really, really knew what they were doing when it came to the world to the SMW Tag Team Championships. And they were absolutely loathed in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, more so than any other tag team or wrestlers you could possibly imagine. And they're the baby faces in this match. And they attack first. You've got Jim Cornette there hammering people with his tennis racket. And you're just like, what the hell? How are the gangsters the bad guys here? Well, <laughs> I think we know why. <laughs> but yeah, this is this is just like the heavenly bodies come out all guns firing. They're after them for blood, and that's the way it's going to go forward. Heavenly bodies were a cracking tag team as well. I don't care what anyone says. You know, um, I preferred, I think, the Sweet Stan and Dr. Tom lineup. Though Dr. Tom and Jimmy Del Rey were not bad. You know, they were they were very, very good too. Um Jimmy's moonsault was actually Jimmy was actually a far better like aerial wrestler than people gave him credit for. And he he had the the job of taking over the, you know, when when Stan retired, he had the job of taking over like the aerial duties that Bobby Eaton used to have in the Midnight Express. And they were really, really good. I really enjoyed them. There is a new Heavenly Bodies at the moment, of course, in Southern Tag Team Wrestling. They're also very good. Um, and they are Cornette approved, as you'd expect. Um, but yeah, Jimmy Jimmy, and, and Dr. Tom come out swinging. <laughs> and I, I, such a brawl. It is such a brawl. There is very little traditional wrestling for a lot of this. It's just fighting. Yes. Uh, they're also like, I like the fact that the, the Heavenly Bodies came out with two by fours, short lengths as well, so they could really use them well, <laughs> and it was really going to work. And I, we have to do give a moment's silence for Jimmy Del Rey and Dr. Tom's permed mullets, because they just don't make them like that nowadays, do they? Probably for good reason. Because <laughs> <laughs> they ran out of hair on them too. Ah. <laughs> uh... Oh dear. I just couldn't get over the image of Jim Cornette just flailing away with a tennis racket. It's like, <laughs> I, I want someone to turn that into a match graphic for an Outlaw Mud show now. Do you think <laughs> it would be the ultimate irony? <laughs> oh. oh, anyway, let's just move on because this all happened in 1994, but by 1995, they'd kind of played out their card and really. It was time to move on because, you know, they couldn't turn babyface because of the, let's be blunt, racist crowd in, in that was Smoky Mountain's kind of core base. That's the reason why they were so hated in the first place. Um, so 
they kind of played their card out and everything kind of, they kind of left and everything went back to normal. There was apparently some controversy between Jim Cornette and New Jack at that particular period of time. Um, I'm just trying to see if I can find the details on that. It was all about contracts because Paul Heyman convinced them to leave Smoky Mountain Wrestling a month early without finishing out any other dates to join ECW. Yeah, which is, you know, part of the Cornette-Heyman issue. <laughs> and, you know, these days, Cornette and Heyman don't physically hate each other. Uh, there are pictures of them together smiling. No, because Jim Cornette's too busy hating Vince Russo. Yes, which is perfectly understandable. <laughs> it's like, isn't it hilarious that two of the lo- most loved men in wrestling fandom hate each other as well? Yeah, yeah, this is true. But, I don't know, what can you do? Anyway, Paul Heyman invited the gangsters up north because he saw great potential in Smoky Mountain's biggest, baddest heel team. But, of course, in the northeast violent tag teams were kind of the stock in trade of ECW and they had a couple of violent tag teams up there that matched up with the gangsters perfectly well um, in one sense the world tag team champions at the time were the long standing long story time telling of the Raven and Stevie Richards which was part of the Tommy Dreamer angle which lasted what four years <laughs> um it was still going on even when they joined Twitter because Raven only followed Tommy Dreamer when he joined Twitter to start with. Okay. Wouldn't follow anyone else. It's like still still keeping the kayfabe up there. Anyway. Um, yeah. Um, by the way, Scott Levy, one of the most fascinating people to talk to I've ever met. Like I interviewed Scott Levy for Total Wrestling um, about four or five years ago. I actually have his mobile number, believe it or not. This is how insane things are when you become wrestling journalists. I have Raven's home phone number. <laughs> Raven, Raven doesn't have a phone number. Birds drop off messages for him. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, and I asked him a question, and he would just go, he would riff on it for 15 minutes. <laughs> and this, this like, he would just, and I didn't have to, like, prompt him. He would just, like, go, uh, and then just crank on. And the one, the two-page interview that we originally got planned ended up being it. Well, pages over two months because he just just we just like couldn't leave stuff out. It wasn't even really an interview. I just wrote down what he said because <laughs> it was like this is fascinating. Why would I change anything? And I like I showed it to the editor and he went, "Yeah, you can't change anything, can you? Really, that's great." So yeah, it was one of the best interviews I ever did, and I really did no work whatsoever. <laughs> so yeah, the thing that um, interested me about this match though is why does everyone hate Public Enemy? Like what now? Well, just in general, it seems like um, when they're in ECW, people just like to beat the shit out of them. They got called oh, up I see. in Ross in K- for a couple K- of... I was going to say, in kayfabe land, why do they hate them? <laughs> yeah. Like, even, they always got like worse beatings than they deserved. Like, was it the was it APA that killed them when they got called up to main... Like, when they made Raw after ECW folded and it was just... That like, was, well, right, no, that was to do with them, how can I put it, they left ECW to go to WCW, um, and then, no, they were going to left ECW, were offered a show, shot in WWE, they took a short-term contract or a no-dates contract and walked out on WWE for good money with WCW. 
And then when their WCW contract ran out and they went back to WWE, WWE offered them a contract just so they could get beat up. Because they'd walked out on them before and it was a punishment from what WWE... If I remember correctly... Right, I will... They weren't hated in ECW when they were just getting beat up in typical ECW fashion here then. Yeah, basically. Um, I'm trying to find... House party, no, no. Um, yeah. It was... I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to see where the point was. Uh, okay. Yeah. In 2000, John Bradshaw elaborated that much of the animosity was due to them being brought into the company by Terry Taylor, who had his own backstage issues with much of the wrestlers, including the Acolytes. They also decided to change the planned finish of the squash match, which involved them being driven off the tables by the Acolytes. The Acolytes were instructed only to ensure as they go through the planned finish of the match, leading to the match turned into a legitimate shoe. The Acolytes dominating the public enemy for the entire four-minute match. Public Enemy would wrestle the final time in 1999 in the match tape for Shotgun Saturday night, losing to the Hardy Boys by a disqualification. The match was aired on television in 1999. Shortly after the airing, both members of Public Enemy were released in mid April, along with Steve Williams, Bart Gunn, and Legion of Doom 2000. So that's the reason why. It was Terry Taylor that, that basically... Um, but they were not accepted uh, because they'd gone to WCW first over WWF in 1995. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, it was all politics. Basically, it was all politics. I mean, they went back to ECW in 1999, and they were actually still under contract to WCW. Christ. <laughs> but WCW were like, well, we've got nothing to do. Yeah, sure. Because <laughs> they kind yeah, of done... It was funny watching them get beaten up by the gangsters, to be honest. It was... I mean, the... Public Enemy were, so both of them are sadly no longer with us, but they were a Paul Heyman creation. They were two guys who had good matches together, but they were never clicking as the characters they were before. Johnny Grunge and Rocco Rock really didn't click. They were mid-card talents you put on to have a good show with each other, and that was it. And they were never going to go anywhere. And then when Heyman took over the book, of ECW in 94, he put them together, gave them these characters of, of hip-hop looking white boys. Everybody should hate them because they're ripping off black people, which they did, because it was a large black audience in ECW, and they became mega heels on the first night. And I think, I don't think it was Gabe Sapolsky who said, like, it was like Heyman flipped a switch. We're changing the business. Right here, right now, this is what wrestling's going to look like. And he was right. And the gangsters were part of that kind of like, here's how you change the business. You take a tag team that's got potential and you give them the platform to shine. He did it with the public enemy. He did it with the eliminators. He did it with several people, but the gangsters were probably one of the great success stories of ECW wrestlers with potentially great talents, especially on the mic being given a platform to shine. And that's really what they were about. I think. And this is where New Jack really became New Jack because within the first match he's coming out, he's hit people he's hitting people with weapons. We've got the iconic theme they didn't have the rights for that's playing and just they went into so many high profile feuds with basically every top team in ECW. You got great bouts with the Eliminators, the Dudley Boys, 
the weird form like alliance with Spike Dudley. There was just so many interesting stories throughout their sort of run in ECW because even if they didn't really hold the titles much, they were always given something to do and someone to fight with. Yeah, that was it. it they were they were they they could put things together that were just based around simple stuff and that's always what sells well. Plus you had I mean Devon and Bubba were great workers, but the rest of the Dudleys were not particularly fantastic. Let's be honest. <laughs> you know, right, you dance... think someone called Big Dick Dudley is going to be a class A wrestler with the name dances, like Dick Dudley. Dances with Dudleys was definitely not that good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was the level of the Dudleys to start with. Um, and yeah, they they were uh, you know they they had plenty to work with, but Eliminators. You couldn't have a bad match with the Eliminators. That's just not possible. Perry Public Platt Renan was... Oh, my God. He must have had a screw loose. He just did. Watch... John Cronus definitely had a screw loose. Just watching the sort of... Oh, we put a table on the rope. Let's put a ladder on top of the table and then jump off the top of it. Well, yeah. And it was at one point in one of these matches, was it the Public Enemies and Raven and, and um, Stevie Richards match, the first one I watched, Someone puts a table on top of the table and sets fire to the table underneath the table on top and then drops somebody on top of the table. Yes, that's how the <laughs> public enemy defeat Raven and Stevie Richard because it's an elimination tag and the gangsters get eliminated first and then all of a sudden Stevie Richards is above a table that's on fire and getting splashed through it. <laughs> yes, it's like, it's my yeah. But yeah, you, you couldn't have bad matches with the eliminators. You couldn't have bad matches with public enemy because they were just too good, you know, and... The, but you look at the other tag teams who were around at the time, like the Pitbulls, they were probably gone by the gangsters had really made a mark by then. Um, but, you know, it, there was just so much stuff going on for them to have a good time with. Some own gangster party were there, you know. It was it was really, really cool. There was also a big change in music. Their theme in Smoky Night and Wrestling was Fight the Power by Public Enemy, which is still one of my favourite songs, but absolutely about the politics they were trying to bring to Smoky Night and Wrestling. Uh, they changed their theme to uh, Natural Born Killers, which is by Ice Cube and Dr. Dre, um, which is exactly... the entire time they fought. Yeah, it didn't to start with, but once they turned baby faces um, in March of 1995, because they were basically, they were just too popular as heels, and they had a big feud with the headhunters. And believe me, if you're wrestling the headhunters, you're the baby faces. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't care who you are. If you're wrestling the headhunters, you're going to be popular. Um, they had a big feud with the headhunters uh, when apparently New Jack was in prison and couldn't be couldn't go and help Mustafa Saeed, um, and he managed to get out in time to save Mustafa, others turning uh, themselves baby faces because it gives you a big dramatic baby face run, um, and that was kind of that really. But once they became babyfaces, the music would play through the entire match. It became, it became part of that um, Undertaker-style entrance that New Jack had. We talked about Sandman having a great entrance, but New Jack's entrance and the gangster's entrance was really, really good as well. As soon as that music the, hit, you knew what was going to happen. The problem with the Sandman's entrance is the song takes too long to get going. Because it'll hit, and the Sandman will spend like an, a minute to a minute and a half just milling about the crowd. Like, um, 
I recently reviewed an MLW War Games match, and um, the Sandman was in that, and he was like the first entrant, and before he spent about two minutes before he got in the cage, just spilling beers on fans, <laughs> letting his music play out. It's all right when you've got like you know like two thousand and five One Night Stand, maybe the best wrestling entrance I've ever seen. Oh, because it's by far a great track. It's just yeah, it's just, it, a bit him in the ass because it's like, oh, I want to do something desperate and fast, but I've got to wait for Enter Sandman to kick in. <laughs> Otherwise, nobody's going to know what the hell's going on. Yeah, that's it. It's just it's the and you know, it, but but certainly I think that the Natural Born Killers intro for New Jack and for well specifically for the gangsters because it's more of a gangsters thing was a brilliant idea because no one had ever done it before. No one had had the music play all the way through the song. It's an instrumental. There's very few words to it, so it can go all the way through the song. It doesn't distract you whilst you're watching the match. And, yeah, it just worked. Um, and they continue to be a big tag team, but the first big controversy of New Jack's career, well, not of New Jack's career, of the gangsters' ECW run was what's known as the mass transit incident when... Uh, on a house show in Revere, Massachusetts, the gangsters were supposed to be wrestling Devon and Axel, Devon Dudley and Axel Rotten, who they were having a big feud with at the time. That's on our playlist, by the way. There is matches from uh, Hardcore TV, DCW Hardcore TV. You can see um, uh, some of those matches. Um, and the gangsters were wrestling them. And then uh, Axel Rotten couldn't make the match. Um, apparently, he had problems. His grandmother had problems. So um, Eric Kulas was a trained wrestler or so he told uh, Paul Heyman who, and then told him he was 21 and Killer Kowalski had trained him um, and he suggested he could take his place in the match and Paul Heyman's okay then. And then from what has been said on various documentaries, he's decided he was going to try and help book the match, despite the fact he was actually 17 years old and not been trained. And he asked uh, New Jack if he could cut him to blade him to get a little bit of blood to show off to his family. And New Jack said, yeah, sure, I'd be glad to. And uh, took advantage of a 17-year-old boy Though, to be fair to New Jack, he didn't know he was 17, but he yeah, probably should have done it. Him. <laughs> yeah, it just... He completely messed him up. He did. And he used, like, a scalpel to cut him. As he said, I cut that boy deep. He was perfectly, you know, uh, honest about it. To go um, back to the um, Dark Side of the Ring episode, when New Jack's talking about this, he felt disrespected by the fact that A. Coolass tried to book the match when he was there as a replacement. And B, it's like um, he purposely told Devon to stay out of the match because he was just going to mess the kid up. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then, uh, funnily enough, only six years later, rather sadly, actually, Kulas passed away from complications to gastric bypass surgery. And parent and Kulas, the parents did try and sue. ECW and it was thrown out because, um, uh, but it was um, that had been a racist piece of shit, yeah, and um, yeah, and that was it basically. Um, and again, the family tried to sue when their son died, uh, because they believed it was caught on by depression and major eating disorder after the match, but that's pretty much where it is, and you know, uh, it is what it is. 
I'm not particularly a fan of people taking advantage of people in a wrestling match because it's supposed to be fun. I do think Kulas was in the wrong, but he shouldn't have been in that match to begin with. I think the blame really is for a mixture of New Jack and a mixture of Paul Heyman, who should have been more careful with the people he hired. But we could say an awful lot of that through ECW history. Um, and it kind of rests with, with Kulas, whose attitude was completely wrong to how you project yourself specifically in that era. But it wasn't the blame of any one particular person, but it certainly shouldn't have happened. In my opinion, yeah, I'm kind of of the same mindset. It's like there's, there's fault on all sides, and to try and pin it on one is just, it's not worth it. Yeah, not at all. Um, there was some cracking future in this period. They would win the tag team titles and drop them back. Uh, where are we? In after 119 days, I think it was. It wasn't a particularly long reign. No. Um, yeah, Gangsters lost the World Tag Team titles to the Eliminators on January 4th, 1997, an episode of Hardcore TV, ending their 139-day reign. They went on to feud with the Dudley Boys over the title over the next several months, and at Heat Wave, the Gangsters defeated Dudley Boys and a Steel Cave back to capture their second World Tag Team Championship. Mustard Seed left after the title win, leading to dissolution of the Gangsters. The Dudley Boys returned the championship, forfeited by Seed's departure. Yeah, this was a bit of a strange turning point for the gangsters because Mustafa Saeed decided he no longer wanted to be in a tag team with New Jack on the grounds that he thought he was as big a star as New Jack he wanted to go solo and be a solo wrestler and as Saeed was like a great body and a great wrestling body he wasn't the talk that New Jack was there was no way he could get himself over and funnily enough one of New Jack's best friends in the wrestling world is Ricky Morton. And he talked to Ricky about it. And Ricky said, don't worry, you're the star. And he said, there are days that me and Robert Gibson cannot stand one another, but we know which side our bread's butter because I ain't shit without him and he ain't shit without me. So we're still the Rock and Roll Express. And he said, I have no idea what Mustafa Saeed is thinking because without you are the gangsters, you don't need him. And that was that. And New Jack went on to have a bunch of partners, um, starting with Perry Saturn, who had a similar, well, not Perry Saturn, John Cronus, who had a similar problem because Perry Saturn had left WCW. John Cronus was out of tag team partner. So they became the Gangster Mates, which is one of the best names for a tag team ever. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and uh, yeah, so. That was um, an interesting take about how to save a tag team. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, the gangster has worked surprisingly well. I mean, it's it's not always the smartest approach to be like, oh, these two teams broke up. They used to be enemies. Let's see what they're like as friends. But Kronos and New Jack found an incredible chemistry that kind of carried it through the sort of complete lack of logic for them teaming up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it worked really, really good. Um, and then after a while of like being in tag teams and another tag team with Spike, Spike Dudley, which they couldn't come up with a name for, but Spike used to dress as Mustafa Saeed in psychedelic, uh, colored combats. Um, <laughs> and we'll kind of just try to mimic the balcony dive a lot of the time. Yes. And that's really where we get to, um, New Jack's solo career where he kind of 
emphasizes his solo wrestling, but it he starts doing diving splashes and he does splashes off the top rope and then he splash, does splashes off high things and eventually just goes to the balcony and does splashes off them. And once he'd done it once, it kind of became a thing and he said, I'm not doing it anymore because it was wanted. Uh, and then Heyman would go, you've got to do it. I said, but why? I don't have to do anything. I don't want to. And then I'll pay you. And it was a way of getting more money out of Paul Heyman. <laughs> which is the perfect accessible wrestling thing to do, but it's not the best thing to do to your body because those are big dives that they were taking again and again and again, and it was a lot of risk for his body. You can see some of the after effects in some of the matches, like in the one with Steve Carino, where he can barely walk after he's hit it. And it's yeah. just it's so... Like, once you've done it once, sure... But then he kept trying to top that. And that led to the Rick Grimes incident. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he had some big feuds with um, uh, a Spanish angel, Vito LaGrosso, Tony Vito. Um, the Baldies, wasn't it? That was the name of the Baldies, yeah. yeah. Like a street gang. And um, New Jack eventually had a big match with Grimes. And they both ended up. Um, it was on they, a scaffold, I think. Yeah, yeah, they were on a scaffold. It was they were on a ledge slash scaffold, and the table was in the wrong place. And Vic wasn't particularly keen on going because it was an awfully big risk. And New Jack was annoyed with Vic because he hadn't doing it. And he said, "Well, we're going now," and pulled him off the thing. And of course, Vic then went at a slightly slower rate because New Jack went first, and he landed on top of New Jack. And it gave New Jack brain damage and, and a broken leg. Oh, and a blind in one eye. Yeah. Yeah, he he got really messed up from that fall to the point that people think it influenced a lot of his later sort of aggressive behavior in matches because he couldn't sleep properly, he couldn't see in one eye, he was left with permanent brain damage. It One fall messed everything up. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. And a lot of things that happened in the aftermath of that um, were not great, to be honest, for him. And certainly, I, I mean, he passed away because of a heart attack, and that's probably related to a lot of his drug use when he was younger. But certainly his actual physical health was not great. Um, and... You know, the, there was various other incidents. The next step, the next bad incident happened in XPW because ECW declared bankruptcy in April of 2001. And funnily enough, XPW had caused themselves a bunch of problems. XPW was run by Rob Black, who is a porn producer uh, on the West Coast. And they, when ECW went out to Los Angeles to do a show. XPW bought a bunch of front row tickets and started a mass fight, which, to be honest, New Jack and Tracy Smothers ended very quickly because, you know, both of them were serious, uh, serious fighters. You know, Tracy Smothers, of all people, the comedy dancing uh, Southern Italian, uh, who obviously as well is no longer with us, was badass shooter because he grew up in the South as a heel. And he knew how to defend himself from attacks from fans because he had to learn real quick when he was young. 
um, and Tracy and New Jack kind of sorted everything out. <laughs> Just the two. Yeah, of them. You don't mess with Tracy Smothers. That's no. That's no, one. Or... one. Yeah. You don't mess with Tracy Smothers. <laughs> He's got a helicopter Absolutely. waiting on the roof that's going to take him away from all this. Yeah, and uh, New Jack as well was you know badass, uh, as a lot of the ECW guys were. Um, and they kind of kicked their ass. But then, of course, six months later, when ECW went out of business, XBW came a-calling for these people that had beaten them up because they needed their name value. They hired Shane Douglas as their, as their main booker, who promptly moved the organization to Philadelphia because, yeah, why wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, you built this home base in California. You're getting big crowds in California. So let's move everything to Philadelphia. Because they basically wanted to make ECW 2.0. Yeah, essentially, that. and that's exactly what he did with a lot of the same wrestlers in the same building in in the Viking Hall, well, well you know, the ECW Arena as was. Um, but before they moved to Philadelphia, New Jack had a lot of matches in the LA region, as did John Cronus, um, including a scaffold match with Vic Grimes, where which him, yeah, where he tasered Vic and then threw him off the top of the the ring post sorry so through the top of the scaffold through some tables but was aiming for the ring post where which from what he told everyone though it has come out in from what i understand in the the show from dark side of the ring there was perhaps a bit more agreed upon than originally uh said it was just part of the legend of new jack no new jack full-on admitted in the documentary he was trying to kill grimes oh yeah no he made it in the documentary but from, from the dark side of the ring commentary, from some of the things I, that people have pointed out, they say um, uh, that it might not have been as like legit as people have said in the past. Well, either way, Grimes got away quite lucky considering he only got a broken leg. Yeah, true. <laughs> he then went on to horrifically attack Gypsy, Gypsy Joe. Uh, Why did nobody ever bother to tell New Jack what Gypsy Joe's shtick was? <laughs> like, I feel like this this was just an intentional murder of an old man. It's yeah. Like, oh yeah, let's let's not tell New Jack. This guy lives to no sell people. It's like the Inok. Was it Inoki? Yeah, yeah. The Inoki incident where you've got oh yeah, this guy no sells offense. What do you mean he no sells offense? And so I'm just gonna <laughs> kill him. It's like, what? <sighs> I always felt yeah. that one was probably more intended yes, to be I... violent by just not telling New Jack what's going on. Though, funnily enough, the Gypsy Joe incident, by New Jack's own admission, is the only regret he has. Yeah. He felt bad about that one. Yeah, because it is just like... Gypsy Joe's a deathmatch wrestler. He knows all stuff. That's what that's what he does. But he was sixty nine years old. Yeah, it's probably not a good idea to beat an old man's brain in with crutches. No, as the crowd just left. Um, but yeah, there there's some interesting matches around this period. If you look at our playlist, um, bizarrely, we have the Sandman versus New Jack in Florida on the Sunshine Network. Which is where ECW was on its first like TV televised show, bizarrely, and New Jack and Sandman have a nice professional wrestling match, <laughs> kind of. Um, but it's run by Dave Prezak, who 
promotes shimmer wrestling these days. And, of course, uh, the, the commentary team is Kevin Kelly and Don Callis. Which is incredible. Yeah. Like, this is New Japan Pro Wrestling's commentary team, like, 10 years before they would become, well, no, not even that, 15 years before they would become the commentary team. It's and really strange. They're calling a match between ECW legend just having a wrestling hardcore match. Yes. Oh, it's mxpw.com. Oh. Yes. Me and John were trying to figure out which promotion of Dave Prazak's, because he's had a few. <laughs> um, this one was, and it's MXPW. Right. Motor, motocross pre-wrestling. So that one wasn't on cage match. Ah, uh, okay then. It must have been a short-lived promotion. Um, yeah, I mean, Sandman versus New Jack, considering the fact that they're both, neither of them are in their particular prime, um, and they, they, they had enough gas in the tank to make it really interesting. And they have a promo the week before where they, they share a beer, and then the following week they just try to murder each other. With some early use of liberal uh, black and white footage to cover up the blood, which was really, really good, except for the last shot when the Sandman wins. I think I'm not giving anything away here. When the Sandman wins, rolls towards the camera, and he goes back to colour, and his face is still covered in blood, which is just like, that, that's, that's ace. <laughs> You idiots. <laughs> there were a lot of interesting matches around this time period because the demand for ECW-style wrestling from ECW guys was still quite high because the next one is New Jack Sabu and Sandman in a body bag match for 3PW. It's like... the ECW may have died, but people still wanted the wrestling and they still wanted the violence. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to bear in mind, it, it, and also it wasn't just the violence. Steve Carino had a big run in uh, FWA in the UK after his ECW, concurrently with the ECW run, and it was just a straight wrestling run. You know, Carino was known for being hardcore, but as a straight up and down wrestler, it was actually exceptionally good. You know, and it's one of the reasons why he was big in Japan. Hashimoto loved him. His wrestling mind was really, really keen. He was a good booker. He was incredibly creative. It's no wonder they hired Carino as a trainer in WWE. He's he's like, he's one of those guys with a complete wrestling mind. He can book, he can write, he can train, he can wrestle. He's just all around great. And he was the top heel in MLW's first incarnation. Yeah. The only <laughs> that would and he uh, Carino said that was the best place he ever actually did booking because he had a budget in MLW. Um, you know, he said he said every promotion I worked, I ended up closing down. <laughs> like, said, at least in MLW, New Jack never appeared in MLW. To be honest, considering like Carino and the Extreme Horseman went on an absolute like revolution against old school hardcore guys, so they were taking on Terry Funk, The Sandman, Doctor Death, Steve Williams, Sabu. They literally took aim at any old sort of legend. I'm surprised New Jack never appeared. Um, there is a possibility that New Jack may have been just too much to deal with. <laughs> it was. Because, you know, he's an adventure. And it's like MLW, though MLW is a big indie, let's be honest. It's a really big indie. In fact, it's bordering on being a major these days. If Ring of Honor is a major, then MLW is a major. Let's say that, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but back then, it was the biggest thing in indie wrestling really it had a budget it had major stars 
but also they had to kind of they were trying to kind of caught a more mainstream audience as they are doing now but they've got a much bigger chance of getting a mainstream audience now because they've moved away from the violence and it's a much more pure wrestling orientated product there's still violent stuff don't get me wrong but it's not everything is it no it was it's always balanced yeah whereas back then it was kind of the key thing and it was still but that was it it was like extreme everything back then you know it it even shows in in like local wrestling shows in the UK who had like Blood and Guts main events because that was kind of the expectation for an indie wrestling show. Um, but yeah, and you know it's it, he would go on to be more mainstream as he got older. I think as well his last run with a major company. We have got yeah New Jack versus Sabu and Sandman on three pw three pw. Which was an ECW arena company, as you probably imagine, which was run by the Sandman and a not Sandman by the, the Blue Meanie, who had clearly borrowed CZW's ring. <laughs> and <laughs> and was, you couldn't watch this one, but this was just pure violence again. It was very I, hardcore, very weapon spot heavy. Yes, I did watch it actually. I just couldn't remember it very well. <laughs> it kind of, it blends in with a lot of the other matches because, yeah, despite like having wrestling experience, New Jack always got lumped in as a one-trick pony, and he makes a joke in this match. He's like, "I can do a move. I can do a suplex," and he hits a suplex. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, it's it's, it's different to this match. Um. But yeah, and it's amazing because like Sabu and Sandman had wrestled each loads of times and they'd all been dreadful. Uh, there was... Sabu is Sabu. <laughs> well, well, no, the first time they wrestled on pay-per-view, Heyman made them do it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it was dreadful because Sandman turned up hammered drunk and Sabu was in no mood at that particular point. So Heyman made them do it again at the end of the match. So when they did the commercial video release at the end of the pay-per-view, they did the commercial video release based on the second match where the fans were kind of like knew what would happen because obviously it happened once before. They did the second one. It was the main event of another pay-per-view. I think it was November to remember. And they put it on first to make sure Sandman was sober. Then taped it and put it at the end of the show. They did it before the show, so like it was the opening match on the card, and then they they did the rest of the show and put that on at the end of the show when it was on the pay per view feed. <laughs> so it was most of was a bit of a liability. Oh yeah, um, but then again, it was just like, well, why would you book Sandman and and Sabu in a match together? Sabu's notoriously inconsistent and Sandman's notoriously unreliable. Surely that's asking for trouble. But, yeah. <laughs> uh. Anywho. Uh, but, yeah, so propane wrestling was an interesting thing. It was when, you know, um, Lumini came back to the ECW arena with a porn star on his arm and a ripped figure and started his own wrestling promotion. Because why wouldn't he? <laughs> uh, he was he was genuinely dating Jasmine Sinclair, who was his manager at the time. Um, but that was that. And then 
to round out his mainstream career, New Jack found a new home in Impact Wrestling. Really? Jack boy. As a comedy wrestler. <laughs> I mean, he's there was the... He surprisingly had a lot of fun with that. Because it was yeah. something different. I think so. I mean, he started off in, in the same kind of stuff um, that he was used for. He did the Hard 10 tournament. He was... Um, he did Hardcore Justice, uh, where they reunited the gangsters for one more time. Mm. Um, uh, he tagged with Paris Sand and, and the Sandman. He did all the ECW type stuff, and there was the Extreme 2.0 things. But really, yeah, I think that's probably the most fun he thing he did because he had a comedy tag team with Sharp Boy and had fun doing it. And why wouldn't you? Sharp Boy's great. I love Shark Boy. Who doesn't love Shark Boy? He was heartbroken when the news broke about New Jack. Yeah. Because they never really got to explore their tag team properly because he wasn't around long enough. No, and that's just it's horrible for for friends, and I think that's it. I mean, like there was a great outpouring of love for New Jack um, at the at, in the last few days because of of uh, recently losing him. Um, but yeah, he he's a really well loved guy, incredibly honest, and he did change the way people thought about African American wrestlers in North America. He was one of the most absolutely believable people in the business. Yeah. Though and sadly, he, was... he also seemed to be lost in his own character quite a lot of the time. That's true. There was... A... For everything, he was great about him in, his, in the sense of his ability to speak his mind about the political situation of, North, of African Americans. The toxic masculinity that went along with that kind of undid it. To be honest, for me. He's always going to be... See, I'll always be a fan of him. He's one of the first people I saw when I started watching ECW as a kid. And, like... Well, the tapes I was watching as a kid. As a kid, you were watching these people slice and dice each other as a child. As a child. child. I had several different wrestling tapes, and almost all of them had at least one bloody match on them. Which is fair enough, yeah. I'm not joking. He was... He was such an inspiration to so many different wrestlers, especially African-American wrestlers, because it's like, here's a guy on primetime TV speaking the truth and beating the shit out of people. Like, that that is a textbook edition of what the American dream is to some people. To be able to speak your mind and beat people up. And New Jack was the walking embodiment of that. Because... I just... For all of his shortcomings, the impact he left on the business and the people he probably inspired is worth it to me. I think so. And I think that um, things happen in the wrestling industry because of New Jack. I don't think the Nation of Domination gets any traction without New Jack giving you the extreme version first. Because that's what the Nation of Domination was. It was the gangsters, but just made safe. The gangsters, but militant and heel. Yeah, militant, but and made safe. They were a PG version of what the gangsters were going to be. And if you don't have the nation domination, you don't have the rock, do you? You know that launch pad's not there. 
Um, I think the Hurt Business probably have been influenced by the fact that they can speak their mind as African-American wrestlers in, an, a again, a much more business-orientated version of what New Jack was. But again, it's like he did it first. He was doing it 20 years ago before it was allowed, if you will. He walked so people can run. He absolutely did. You know, he wasn't a nice person. <laughs> Let's not get things wrong. He's not a political hero by any stretch of the imagination. And it's a business. And he saw it as a business and an opportunity to make money. And that is still the commercialization of a political message. But he used that political message to his advantage, which is surely really what wrestling is about. Now, I'm not saying he didn't believe what he said. And I don't believe, I believe there's an awful lot of truth to what he said. Um, and actually, one of my favorite promos ever in wrestling was at the Hardcore Homecoming show that Jeremy Borash presented in Philadelphia, uh, where he teamed with, um, who was it he teamed with? John Cronus. And they fought Axel and Ian Rotten. They didn't have a match because the Bruce brothers couldn't wrestle as a tag team, but they could have a fight <laughs> because the, they'd split up in 93 after their brutal series and they were never allowed to wrestle together again. And then they wrestled each other for about a year <laughs> in all sorts of horrible, horrible matches. Um, and they said they would never tag together again, which is fair enough. Um, so they just had a fight instead with New Jack and Cronus. And uh, New Jack and Cronus cut promos at the end of the night. And New Jack said, "I spent more." I think he said, "I spent more time in jail than the than the janitor working a nine to five. And he just went on a tear with this promotion about how much he loved ECW and the arena, and how much he loved the fans, and how much they'd given him in his career. And it was absolutely heartfelt." You know, it was absolutely, you could tell he genuinely believed in what wrestling had done for him. And I think he did love wrestling. I don't think he loved wrestling the way, say, Daniel Bryan loves wrestling or um, the pure wrestlers love wrestling, but it certainly gave him a life I don't think he thought he would have. I think my favorite, like, anecdote from him was in his autobiography, and it was like, Whenever there was kids in the crowd, if they had weapons, I'd always be sure to use them in a match. <laughs> <laughs> like, he was for the kids, despite the fact he was, he was cursing he and was... swearing and trying to murder people. He still cared about the kids. Yeah, and he wrestled for every promotion in North America except for WCW. He wrestled for the USWA, he wrestled for Smoky Mountain, ECW, WWE. He had dark matches for WWE, believe it or not. They tried out New Jack. Mm. <laughs> I remember just, reading that and thinking, I am not surprised that didn't go well. I, I well, I can't imagine being in a seat and watching a New Jack match. Can you? Just be like, yeah, all right. <laughs> um, but yeah, and that was that was that. And unfortunately, New Jack passed away last week. And we wanted to do this show on Sunday, like we said, and that's the reason why Chelsea's show was this week. We were trying to we to, we we came up with something quick because we both had issues this week. Um, but we hope you've enjoyed it and we would like to say thank you New Jack for everything that you did for pro wrestling 
I still and... find it kind of sad that I actually reviewed his last match because he wow. was at ICW's Then and Now event on Mania Weekend in the main event of that with the Carnage crew against the Rejects and Neil wow. Diamond and he got the big win by smashing a guitar over I think it was Neil Diamond Cutter's head <laughs> I can't remember Everyone has to have a last match somewhere, don't they, though? Yeah, I'm just glad he got to have, like, because the crowd went wild for this. Like, I've never seen a crowd so hot for, like, a nostalgia main event. Yeah. And when New Jack came out, that music hit, and he had a trash can full of weapons. That that was it. The crowd was unhinged. It was, like, it was a late show. <laughs> I think it must have been... Must have been pushing like 11 p.m. over there, maybe law, and this crowd were on fire. It was incredible. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up for this week because that's the Troopany show for this week. I'd like to thank my guest, Mr. John Dinsdale. Where can we find you, sir? You can find me at John Deathman on Twitter. That is the gateway to hell where you'll find all my writing, my opinions, things like that. I'm. I'm fairly nice, you don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me at Sheriff Lonestar on Twitter. You can find the show, Troopany Show, on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook, The Troopany Show, and on Patreon. Where you can keep The Troopany Show free forever. For everyone, take care, and we'll speak to you soon. Bye! <laughs>